0: fascinating people fascinating places g'day and welcome to the dan mainwaring podcast this is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous the celebrated and the obscure the well-known and the undiscovered interviews articles and discussion from around the globe
1: do you still think it's a meteor professor metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial Uh, Not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite.
0: You may have recognized the voice of Orson Welles in the radio dramatization of War of the Worlds. But less than a decade later, similar remarks were made by a real US Air Force official when presented with a mysterious and still unexplained phenomenon that caused a sensation in northern Scandinavia. The official report, which was buried under a veil of secrecy for 40 years, stated These phenomena are obviously the result of a high technical skill which cannot be credited to any presently known culture on Earth. It concluded their origin was possibly outside the Earth. In this episode, I delve deeper into the world of UFOs beyond Hollywood and its flying saucers. I talked to four experts from the fields of academia, journalism, and research who have thoroughly investigated the phenomena, either as skeptics or as believers.
2: Look at that thing, dude. As I often say, uh, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them.
1: People make all kinds of mysteries about this stuff. But some people say they had telepathic contact.
2: Look at thing, it's rotating. That was where I finally was able to put things into context. There's a whole fleet of
3: them, look on the AFA. My gosh! There were four crashes within four hours in four different lakes. The military investigated all of them and they never found the explanation to them. When you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think
2: there's a huge conspiracy at work. That is when I saw the Mantis being for my first and only time.
0: We tend to think of unidentified flying objects as a relatively new phenomenon, something that popped up in the middle of the last century. But there are legends about all kinds of aerial oddities such as dragons and witches on broomsticks from around the world. As I started my investigation, I wondered if the flying saucers of today are the same oddities our ancestors described in other terms, or if there was something decidedly different about the objects we've been hearing about for the last several decades. It was the question I put to Greg Ekigian, a professor of history. He has researched a variety of historical topics related to science, technology, and even psychiatry. More recently though, he's developed an interest in the history of the UFO phenomena.
2: You have to say that it's hard not to see this stuff as connected to the long history of people seeing odd anomalous things in the heavens. In, in celestial objects and things like that and and certainly we know that you know even back in the 19th century people were claiming to see flying contraptions of various kinds uh, so there's no question there was already that kind of of cultural fixation on these strange things in the skies, but this was new. This, this is something new that takes place. And and really to my mind, what makes it new were really two things. One was within a very short period of time, the fixation on aliens as being behind it, that, that was, that was pretty much new and combined with that fixation on the extraterrestrial question was the rise of various individuals and groups who really said amongst themselves, I'm, I'm fascinated with this and I want to talk about it with other people and I want to investigate this stuff. The, this kind of sociological moment and event, that to me was also makes this very, very different.
0: If you're looking for a one-stop shop to study evidence about this boon and speculation about otherworldly visitors, you may be inclined to head to Roswell or one of the various stores of oddities on the roads towards Area 51. It may surprise you then to hear of a repository containing over a mile's length of shelves holding photographs, eyewitness reports, and publications headquartered in the Swedish city of Norkoping. The archive contains reports from throughout Scandinavia, but also from Britain, the United States, Russia, and even Zimbabwe. As I began work on this podcast, the archive was awaiting the arrival of a huge consignment of files from Canada. Klaus Vaan, a professional journalist, is the vice-chairman of this huge resource, The Archives of the Unexplained. In his day job, he is used to following leads, asking tough questions and producing accurate stories. In talking to him, it's obvious that he applies the same standards to his UFO research.
3: I have spent. Uh Hundreds and hundreds of hours reading the documents, uh, meeting the witnesses and in, in interviewing the military, would they try to find an answer at that time because the military thought it was the Russians it's always the first thing we Swedes think when something happens, <laughs> and uh, sometimes we are right, but not always.
0: with its close proximity to Russia. It's unsurprising that the Swedish government looked to that nation for answers when strange objects appeared in the sky during the early days of the Cold War. After all, the Soviets, like the Americans, had recruited hundreds of German rocket scientists at the end of World War II. They were actively developing rocket technology. and The involvement of the Swedish military helped to bring a level of credibility into these early investigations of aerial phenomena.
3: I investigated one case in August 1946 where a pilot were out on a training mission. Uh, it was west of Stockholm. It was very bad weather. It was a storm cloud with lightning. He had to adjust his uh, plans, and uh, he took another path. But when he, he came uh, maybe half an hour north of a town called Vesteros. It was very clear, nice weather, and he met this uh, huge, long, cigar-shaped object with no wings, no cockpit, no tail, just a cigar. And he and his, uh, his co-pilot, his navigator, they decided to try to, uh, to uh, fly a little nearer to see what it was. But they were outflown by this, and uh, this strange uh, cigar flew straight into the storm cloud uh, without hesitating, but he he, he avoided it because it was too dangerous. And that case was uh, very, very thoroughly investigated by the military. They they, uh, took him to Stockholm, they made an interview with him, they uh, sent up aircraft and they tried to show him how different aircraft could be seen in distances, but they never managed to find uh, a mundane explanation of this. And this is just one of hundreds of interesting observations during 1946. And the most strange thing about the ghost rockets uh, is probably that they were crashing into lakes. Many, many of them. I have met uh, maybe 15 witnesses seeing ghost rockets going down in broad daylight in front of them uh, with a huge splash and a water column. Uh, and uh, Nothing has been found. The military have been searching those lakes. All they could see was some sort of indentation and the, ro- and the rocks thrown up on the shore and water lilies cut off. So there were tangible physical evidence that something had happened. But uh, they never find out what uh, those ghost rockets really came from or, or how they could fly. I mean, there were rockets. There were no wings. They were flying horizontally and they should have been falling down and they did of course in lakes but mm-hmm. uh, never on
0: land so so the military actually explored the area and they didn't find any physical evidence of they found physical evidence of the crash but no physical evidence of what caused it like metal or meteorite right. debris anything like that is that correct
3: no that's correct they they only found indentations and and uh, Loads of witnesses.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And at one time. on uh, <clears throat> In July. 19th 1946. There were four crashes. Within four hours. In four different lakes. In Sweden. Uh, and the military investigated all of them. And they never found. The explanation to them. I met. Uh, many of the witnesses. Of, of those four crashes. And they uh, still. Remember what happened. Today, of course, many of them are are, are gone, and uh, mm-hmm. I did most of my field research into this in the 1980s, and we, of course, we didn't have time to meet everyone we wanted before it was too late. Mm-hmm. So many people we would have loved to interview, uh, which we didn't. We didn't make it.
0: And so, it's interesting you say the military were investigating this. Was there primary concern national security thinking maybe this is some kind of Russian secret weapon? Or were they investigating just for kind of curiosity's sake, just to see what this is that's going on?
3: No, they thought it was the Russians. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the main um, main, um, line of inquiry. And of course, uh, this spread to the US and to The UK, you can find documents, of course, in American archives, which we have seen that even uh, even the president was informed about the ghost rockets. And in Great Britain, a special task force were waiting to fly to Sweden with uh, special radar equipment to help out, try to identify those rockets. But uh, the Swedish prime minister uh, never allowed them to, to come here. So, um, but it didn't stop with this. I mean, the ghost rocket wave, it uh, continued uh, in a smaller way. Mm-hmm. And you can still, during the 2000s, we can still get uh, reports of ghost rockets, often connected
0: to water. And so essentially what people are seeing is something that kind of looks like a rocket, but it's flying around horizontally, and then for some reason just... Plummets into a lake and almost like disappears.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's,
3: uh-huh. I mean, it, it's very, very strange. I mean, I've been into this business since 1974, <clears throat> and to me, the Ghost Rocket Enigma mm-hmm. is, the, is the biggest issue of Enigma I can think of, really, because so many uh, witnesses, daytime, uh, in uh, Many people at the same time, on several locations. You can hear the sound from the rocket. You can see the the, the the sun shining on the hull. You can hear the impact. You can see the debris. I mean, not many UFO cases is as good as
0: that. <laughs> the following year, on the other side of the Atlantic, UFO mania took off when the press gave a huge amount of coverage to an object seen by a pilot named Kenneth Arnold in Washington State. It was described as looking like a flying saucer, a term that quickly captured the public's imagination, and for the next five years there were huge numbers of similar sightings across the US. But were these credible, or was this an example of mass hysteria brought on by media coverage? It's a question I put to Greg Higgian question there is there was a lot more
2: air traffic after world war ii than there had ever been before and a lot of that you can quantify this very clearly by looking at the number of airplanes that were in the air because of of course right after world war ii you see the explosion of commercial air travel so there's a lot of things out there running around including you know military, uh, military planes and things like that, 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 that maybe, uh, uh, the government doesn't want to talk about. So there's no question more is going out there. The, uh, but the other part of it is, is there, it, you just have to recognize and acknowledge that the media played a very, very big role. Um, when the media... Uh, in any given location or region, started to talk about this stuff and look at it. And particularly once this stuff began to be referred to as flying saucers or later on as UFOs, what happened is when people saw something they couldn't explain in the sky, one of the first questions they asked themselves is, did I see a UFO? Mm -hmm. And and so it becomes this, uh, you know, uh, this kind of default setting that even if you're skeptical about UFOs, you still in the back of your mind are wondering, is that what I saw? And mm-hmm. so the, there is a media dimension to this.
0: Media hype aside, some cases were truly baffling, and the UFO flat peaked in July 1952, when UFOs were spotted over the US Capitol.
2: The famous sighting over Washington DC in 1952 is actually intriguing, because these these things were spotted in, in multiple times, multiple witnesses, and Radar was involved as well. I think that's a particularly perplexing
0: one. The sightings made front page news and compelled Air Force Major General John Samford to host an extraordinary press conference to address the public's concerns.
1: I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. A certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion. It does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States.
0: But the press conference didn't do much to quell the sightings, and UFO reports were now becoming common around the world. We know that
2: really by, I would say, within. Four to five years after those first sightings in the United States in the summer of 1947, um, you've got reports coming from just about everywhere in Western Europe, um, uh, Great Britain, um, in um, all of north and south america uh every everywhere from canada to chile are you're you're hearing reports reports are coming out of australia and new zealand um and there are reports in places like the soviet union as well and other parts of eastern europe it's virtually virtually global we have to remember however that all of that is usually contingent on the fact that you need to have either reports of these stuff appearing in newspapers or you had to have people who were interested in UFOs who were tracking things and saying, hey, that's a UFO sighting. Mm -hmm. So some of this is contingent upon, you know, who, who, if anybody, is reporting
0: this stuff. With reports of flying saucers skyrocketing, it was almost inevitable that reports, whether real or imagined, of close encounters with the inhabitants of these crafts would soon emerge. And in 1961... A couple named Barney and Betty Hill from New Hampshire made international headlines when they claimed to have been abducted by aliens. But this wasn't the first instance of a close encounter. Another well-researched case had occurred in Sweden some 15 years earlier, at the height of the ghost rocket sightings. There was a sole witness, a man named Goster Carlson. He claimed that a disc-like craft landed in a forest the seemingly alien operators provided him with medicinal remedies, which he then used to launch his own pharmaceutical company. It was a mysterious case investigated by journalist Klaus Svahn.
3: I wrote a very, very thick book about it, Carlson. Suddenly he saw some strange lights inside the wood. But when he approached it, he saw it was some sort of flying, a discus-shaped object inside this. Entities were moving around, looking very much like you and me. He approached this craft. Some sort of sentinel appeared, and he stopped. This sentinel put up his hand. But you can see that they were working on this craft. They were trying to repair something that seemed to have been damaged outside the craft. And at one point, a woman was coming out, dressed in some white overall. And he throws out a couple of things. To make a long story short, after this craft has has, uh, has lifted again, which it do, it flies away, as Justa tells it. The next morning, he finds stuff lying in in the grass. It's a rod with uh, some sort of inscription and a ring made of gold and uh, some mugs with uh, liquid into
0: them. Carlson's story made me think of another remarkably similar report from New Mexico in 1964. As with the Carlson case, it had a sole witness, this time a police officer named Lonnie Zamora. He also saw a metallic craft on the ground, humanoid figures dressed in white. And as with the Swedish case, the craft suddenly took off, leaving marks on the ground and disappeared. I talked about the New Mexico case with renowned author and UFO skeptic Robert Schaefer.
1: Now, there have been several different proposals on this thing. Some people, of course, say it's aliens. Some people say uh, it was a hoax perpetrated uh, on the officer by the students because this was right at the edge of the, uh, was it New Mexico Tech in Socorro? The the Technical Institute in uh, New Mexico is right adjacent to this spot where uh, this happened, and and some of the people from the school have said, "Yeah, it was a student. It was a student prank a student hoax." Well, if so, I don't know how it was done because you know it would have required a whole lot of resources and be pretty clever. I know the students are clever, but I don't know if they had resources to make that sort of thing happen. Or it could have been, according to some suggestions, just in those days. Now this is nineteen sixty-four. Uh, the Propane balloons that are so common now uh, were basically just an experimental device at this time. I mean, you had hot air balloons, but you didn't have, you know, propane tanks with, you know, self-contained, you know, uh, fuel for hot air balloons. And the the suggestion was that this was somebody was was, had one of these balloons and landed there and got out. And he said, you know, Zamora said he saw from a distance, he saw people, you know, scampering about and then they got back on and then there was a whoosh and it went back up Uh, and that's a possibility although it would have to go up pretty fast if nobody else were to see it so you know it's really it's hard to say you know i don't see anything that says it's aliens Uh, is it entirely is also possible it's been suggested maybe he basically made the thing up it was the small little little marks on the ground well anybody could have made those with a shovel you know so i mean maybe some sort
0: of hoax was involved but It's hard to say exactly what happened. Defying stereotypes of closed-minded sceptics, Schaefer, while not embracing aliens as the answer, admits he's not entirely satisfied with any of the explanations of the Zamora incident. Likewise, Klaas, the UFO researcher, adopts a surprisingly sceptical view of the Swedish incident. Even with the supposed physical evidence left behind by the aliens of a staff, and a ring.
3: In the 1980s, I started to investigate. No one had really interviewed Justa Carlson and tried to find an answer. And he built this monument, which is still standing in this clearing outside Engelholm, looking exactly like the, the saucer-shaped object he did see. I'm a skeptical about quite a few parts of his story. Which, and I, ha- I have seen the staff and the ring. I hold them in my, in my hand. But I never got to analyze them, and now he's he's gone, and he promised me that I was to get those, stuff, those things after his demise, but uh, I never got them, so I'm still trying to find them, I mean, even just a couple of days ago, I emailed with a man who says that he may know where they are, so when I find them, and I make the final analysis of them, then I would say for sure what I think about the case, but there are so many things that I am skeptical about,
0: In the United States, as early as 1952, the CIA worried about the potential for the USSR to create mass hysteria by spreading disinformation about supposed UFO sightings. Despite occasional government-led reviews of evidence, which usually left unanswered questions, evidence of UFOs was largely swept under the rug. But in the Cold War, this type of secrecy wasn't uncommon. And as early as 1946, the Swedish government were trying to keep a tight lid on their investigations, as Klaas van explains.
3: They told the, the mass media not to publish exactly where those observations were made because they didn't want uh, the adversary to know. Mm-hmm. But many newspapers, uh, they wrote anyway uh, about exact points of impact or exact points of Witnesses, but uh, the military they appointed a special task force that worked for more than half a year with this, and uh, this task force um, were quite quite uh, clandestine. But um, and and all the documents were were secret for forty years. So it was in the early nineteen eighties that we could read them, and in nineteen eighty six they were unclassified. Mm-hmm. So they really tried to to not tell everything, but it was not it was not a cover up really. It was nothing compared to what I think happens in the U.S. Uh, it's a little more open here in Sweden.
0: But this veil of secrecy or dismissal of evidence wasn't embraced across the world, as Greg Higgin explains.
2: There clearly was interest in a number of different countries, particularly, you see this starting in the 1970s, actually. Mm -hmm. I'd say two places you could talk about specifically was the Soviet Union, where there were very serious members of the Academies of Science there who are interested in setting up some sort of study group or body to look into this. You also see this in France. France is probably the most exemplary or paradigmatic example of that kind of thing. The the thing is, and I think the other country that engaged in this was Brazil in the 70s, the thing about it in all of those instances, however, while government was willing to channel some resources for for that kind of work and was willing to work with respectable scientists in in that kind of work, they all were very, very uh, uh, underfunded. Um, most of them were working with very much skeleton crews that couldn't really do much of anything. So yes, there were places that were a little more receptive to it than you see in the United States, but very few of those initiatives ever got the kind of resources that a lot of people felt they deserved or needed.
0: In part two of this investigation, I talked to the experiencers, the people who claim to have had first-hand contact with aliens, and in the absence of any ongoing government research, I discover how private citizens stepped in to fill the void. Well stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com
2: This is Houston, say again, please. Oh, Houston, we've had a problem. That coronavirus is a work of God. As I often say, uh, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them. These officers would kill drug dealers. They didn't care how much dope got sold. There were sectarian relations in Ireland, which had not abated since the 1690s or even since the 1640s. I left grad school, went to
1: NASA so that I could put this telescope in space so that after NASA I could come back and use the telescope
2: to <laughs> get back to my original project. It straddles fantasy and reality. I went to work the next day to tell my coworkers, and a coworker told me about the UFO he had seen the night before. You show me a church that hasn't filled their pews with divorce and remarriage, and have young people fornicated. You show me that church. There were a number of spies and uh, he named five different forms. I definitely
1: knew I was going to be an astronaut. I don't believe that the New Black Panther Party
2: is one of the largest racist or anti-government,
3: anti-democratic
2: groups. Hell, yeah, we've got into <laughs> They were guinea pigs because they simply didn't have the understanding of what they were doing. People make all
1: kinds of mysteries about this stuff. Some people say they had telepathic contact. It's the
3: most powerful feeling you could ever imagine. There were four crashes within four hours in four different lakes. The military investigated all of them and never found the explanation to them.
2: We, at the time, we really didn't know how humans would respond to those gene forces. When you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think there's a huge conspiracy at work. Apology was a religion. Philip J. Glass would be Satan. You can call yourself anything. You can call yourself Pinocchio. You're not a Christian. You're a liar. We are still the peaceful people that was
1: shipped over here. It's just hey, we got guns too.
3: It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun.